Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Before we get started, I would just like to say that this episode is dedicated to our friend Rhonda, who, long ago, it seems like so long ago, it did seem like a long time ago, became our 500th Facebook friend and got her choice of subject. So, Rhonda, here's Nellie Bly. This is for you. And here's your 30-second summary. Nellie Bly was a colorful character who went off script and did her own stunts. She took her teeny tiny waist and sassy attitude to all kinds of war zones, including the U.S. court system, the suffragist movement, class wars, the battlefields of Europe. But her greatest achievements may have been in the field of social reform. The end. Let's talk about Nellie Bly. First, let's drop her into history. In 1864, where it within a year of the end of the Civil War, that was the year that Clara Barton was named the Superintendent of Nurses. The Geneva Convention was also signed by 12 nations, and the International Red Cross was formed that year. New York became the first state to charge a hunting license fee. Lincoln formally established Thanksgiving as a national holiday. Nevada was admitted as the 36th state. In that year, songwriter Stephen Foster, who penned a little ditty named Nellie Bly, died. And on May 5th, 1864, Elizabeth Jane Cochran was born. Who is Elizabeth Jane Cochran? Nellie Bly. Elizabeth Jane Cochran was born May 5th, 1864, in Cochran's Mills, Pennsylvania. Well, that is an interesting name for a town, <laughs> given her last name. Her mother, Mary Jane, and her father, who was, he was a judge, Michael Cochran. Um, Daddy pretty much owned the town. Well, she's the 13th out of 15 of Papa's children and the third out of five of her mother's children. Right. He had 10 children with his first wife, and they play into the story later on. But that's a lot of kids. That is a lot of children. Now, Papa started, this is a bootstrap story, I'm telling you what, Papa started as an apprentice to a blacksmith at the age of four, if you can imagine that. No. (laughs) ultimately ended up buying up property, um, including a general store and a mill. He is a man of property. Within this county, he is a man of respect. He was a justice of the peace, Mm -hmm. and he was the associate county justice for a couple of terms, thus they always called him judge. Plus, he probably employed everyone. That's true. That's so, true. But so if a town is going to be named after somebody, this is the type of person mm-hmm. to have that town named after. Um, so he did have all these children. But to Mary Jane, the mother, this was her first daughter. Yes, she had two sons, and then, hooray, a girl! And you know, like, the moms of today get crazy in the Hannah Anderson store, mm-hmm. where they go to those vintage-smocked, fluffy things? Okay, that mama kind of did the same thing with this baby. She didn't want her little child to dress in gray and brown practical clothing like these other girls. Oh, no. Her daughter was going to be different. She dressed in pink with lace and white stockings. And because she dressed in pink, they started to call her pink that was her name isn't that cute well you know it's not so unusual because to everyone in my family uh-huh even now yes i am book book or aunt book because one of my little sisters could not say my name when she was little and she called me book so it can happen that is super cute pink and me yep so Nellie had tons of town playmates children at this time were not sent to school before seven um you know even now 
in this mm-hmm. state, you don't have to send children to school until they're seven. I, I did not know that. I did know that. I thought it was five. I was anxious to send the children to school long before seven, but yes, I did know that. So an idyllic childhood, really. She was kind of a tomboy, despite those white stockings and pink, but that's okay. That's okay. She had brothers. Yeah, lots of brothers. <laughs> Papa, when she was about five, bought four big lots in town, um, in a town called Apollo, I love the name of that town. And he built a 10,000-square-foot house on them. So it's a mansion. It and it's beautiful. And we'll put a picture up of it. But it's a, it was a beautiful house. Yeah, it was the dream house of her mama, I bet. But a year after they moved in, Papa died suddenly. And shockingly, for this, a legal man. This amazed me. No will. None. Mm-mm. No will. And... 15 children. And now a lot of them are married off with children of their own. So there's a lot of heirs floating around. And you would think he would protect his minor children. I mean, his other children are established, and they Mm -hmm. don't need the level of protection. They enjoyed their father's income the whole time they were growing up. But it doesn't really matter. The older ones descended, demanding their rights. The house had to be sold because it couldn't be divided. I mean... And it wasn't sold at a profit either. mm -hmm. Um, Like, it's it was like $3,000 to make build the house, which is crazy if you think about it. But, okay. But, and it would sell for 2600 So yeah. that's that's not good. So a third of his estate went to Mary Jane, to his widow. That's just automatic. Right. That was the law at the time. And the rest would be divided between, at this time, actually there was 12 living children. So it was about 31000 in today's money. That's... Not that much. Mm -mm. And Mama moved with her five minor children to a thousand square foot place. And if she didn't want to break into her capital, she had 528 a week to raise her children. Mm. Her five children. Now that is a come down. That is a, that's a serious come down from being the wife of the man the town's named after. Of course. And living in that home. Yeah, for less than a year. That's heartbreaking, and I would not be surprised if that didn't just make a huge rift between the children of her. Yes, I believe it did. Husband's former wife, and she. I think it's all done. Yeah. So um, Nellie Bly's schooling was very piecemeal. She went to a village school um, for four months a year, which was standard. And it was a two-room schoolhouse. The primary children were in one room, and the older children were in another. It was 120 children and two teachers. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, So it's it's just a recipe for wildness. And according to records, our friend was not exactly a stellar student and you know what i'm kind of not surprised by that because if you think about what kind of changes i mean her father has died she's been booted out of this life that she knew house Mm -hmm. you know her status is certainly in serious doubt her mother is probably a mess oh yeah um mm. one of her schoolmates um said that she acquired more conspicuous notice for riotous conduct than profound scholarship she was the wild child in class. <laughs> um, of course, she had a different version. She did. She she mentioned how she was dreaming and writing fantasy stories. Oh, and, scary stories and that a, she would write, and she had a vivid imagination. Captivating yeah. her little girlfriends. I'm like, I think you were climbing trees with the boyfriends, yeah. is what I think yeah. you were doing. But there's a little bit of editing in Nellie Bly. There's a little bit of self-editing. Well, that's okay. <laughs> so when Nellie Bly was nine, mother made what I consider to be the hugest mistake ever. Big. 
married this man named Jack Ford, who was not only irresponsible and low, this guy was a mean, abusive alcoholic, and over the course of the five years, he got worse and worse, and several times, in public, he pulled out a gun and threatened to kill his wife. Wow. In public. If this isn't setting the tone for her life, that, you know, first daddy dies, leaves mama alone, then she sees her mama in this Terrible marriage. Terrible. Yeah, she's going to have to support herself. She shouldn't want the man around. No. And, uh, you know, the mama finally moved her children out and filed for that rarest of things, a divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, By then, 14-year-old Pink appeared in court. Her first appearance in court, but not her last, I shall say. Um, But they were free. They were free at last from Jack Ford and his tyranny. Um, Yeah, so obviously she'd seen a husband's no guarantee. His, Her mother was a widow when she married the first time. So this was the third husband. They could die. Even a loved husband could die and leave you destitute and not take care of you, or they could be really bad. And yeah. so she was determined to support herself and her mother, and so like so many of our subjects, she decided that she would become a teacher. Right. So at 15, our friend sets off to state normal school at Indiana, which is a town in Pennsylvania. But first, she went down to the banker to make sure there was enough money to get her four-year education. She didn't want to start and have to drop out, and he assured her, of course. You know, they laid it all out, what she needed for board and lodging and tuition and washing, which is funny. That's a separate fee. I thought that was funny. Uh, but only up to ten pieces. After that, I think you just got to use the sink. I don't yeah. know what happened after ten pieces. But anyway, there was enough money, so off she went. And they studied, this seems weird because a lot of these seem to overlap, but mm-hmm. here's the course of study. Math, grammar, reading, writing, drawing, composition, and spelling. So how does composition differ from writing? Handwriting? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. penmanship. People of this era had such good penmanship. Yeah, mine's terrible. <laughs> well, um, when she came home after her first semester, to her great shock, there was no money left, not even for the train fare back to school. None. None. She couldn't go back. The trustee was not very trustworthy. No. I can't believe I can't believe it. He's not very careful at all. I can't and he was not apologetic. Oh like, well, well that's like guess baby. You don't have, yeah. So mom is running a boarding house and that's what she does. She goes and helps her mother run the boarding house. Her formal education is over. Oh, yeah, and it wasn't that extensive to begin with. Mm-mm. One term. Mm-mm. Never even took her final test, by the way. She dropped out before the final exams. Now, later, she did a little resume boosting, and she told the story, a dramatic story, about two years at school, cut short by a heart condition. It was out of her control, and the doctor said she wouldn't last another year of study or something. I guess I would do that, too, if all I had, you know. It wasn't because some guy jerked with my finances and yeah which might have been embarrassing although although that's out of your control too you have to trust but so from 16 to 20 she is honestly flailing at creating a future for herself she's tutoring she's a nanny she tried housekeeping which is a big come down for the daughter of judge cochran Mm -hmm. um the family all moved to pittsburgh where her older brother albert was enjoying some business success Sons and brothers were responsible for the women folk. Right. Theoretically. I'm, like, hoping. Knowing what I know, I don't know that she was happy about that. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. But she's following the articles in in the local papers, specifically a column by Erasmus Wilson. He's writing under the name QO, which stands for Quiet Observer. 
and he's writing columns, and some of them strike her as not correct. Well, yeah, uh, this column was, I should say, extremely popular with the public. It ran for over 30 years, but it was one series written when Pink, as we say, let's call her Pink uh, for now, yeah. was 20 that changed her life forever. The writer had begun to write about women's spheres. And so I'm going to quote three quotes from this series that kind of, like, ramps up the irritation. Okay. The first quote. Let up on this sphere business and make your home a little paradise, yourself playing the part of angel. Okay. The second. Obviously being sarcastic, but in very poor taste and quite disrespectful. Uh Uh-huh. In China, they sell girl babies as slaves, for they can make no good out of them. Who knows, but this country might have to resort to this sometime. Okay. We're getting angrier. (laughs) And then the third thing is, any woman outside her sphere is trying to wrest from man the prerogatives bequeathed to him by heaven. So our girl Pink goes and gets a piece of paper and a pen and gets busy. And she writes this letter to him spelling out how, what an idiot is. Yeah, it's a long and passionate rebuttal. I mean... Basically, just saying, how how dare you? Mm-hmm. Some women do not have the choice to be little butterflies, right. making her home a pleasant place. And she signed it, Lonely Orphan Girl. Now, this letter was not, you know, you'd think that it would have to be perfect to be to be noticed in, in the way that it was. But it was not. It, there were spelling errors and grammar errors. But there is something about the letter that attracts the attention of the managing editor and he wants to find out who this person is so he runs a little blurb in the paper saying come forward pink went down to the office and she got some assignments um she covered the women's sphere of course was the first one of course then she covered divorce which is amazingly bold for the time, but she had some experience. Yep. She did a little exploration into women's rights, marriage laws, and workplace inequity. That's really um, heavy stuff for right out of the gate. I would think so, yeah. And she, at the time, a lot of the people wrote under pseudonyms, and uh, her editor picked one for her based on a Stephen Foster song, um, Nellie Bly which was spelled differently. It was spelled as the song was N-E-L-L-Y, and it was misspelled N-E-L-L-I-E, but that's what stuck for her name. And, you know, there was no Google, so probably half the people didn't even know that's how the song was pronounced anyway. But um, since Stephen Foster wrote it in Pittsburgh and people really knew it, he thought it was really catchy. And Mm -hmm. so Nellie Bly, it was. And it is a catchy song. We'll put embed a video or two. There's a couple versions out there. There is a lot. Some involve a lot of banjo. I know. And some don't. There were some classier versions. It is a very classic square dance song Mm -hmm. as well. I don't square dance. Do you square dance? Have you ever? Does any? Yes. There is a subculture, my friend. Well, there you go. Square dancing. Yep. You heard it here first. Maybe not. <laughs> not first. Last. You heard it here last. You're, you're applauding, going, yes, there's a whole subculture of square dancers. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, so after she did this eight-part series on the women of Pittsburgh, which, you know, not hard-hitting news for sure, but written with knowledge of the life, she did it on the working women mm-hmm. of the city. Mm-hmm. She talked to them about not just going to the factories where they worked, but she talked about what did they do when they left? What were they like? And this was a kind of 
a departure from women's um, writing at the time. Well, and of course, Nellie Bly offended, you can never say anything without offending people, but she offended the benevolent Christian ladies of Pittsburgh with this critical article about the lack of help giving to working poor women. And she, and I quote, said, The belief infuses our soul that one girl saved, given a lift on life's rough road, is more creditable than a lifetime spent in prayer. Work, not prayer. Practical assistance, not judgment. Coincidence or not coincidence, her column was canceled. (laughs) She's put back on garden and fashion. Which doesn't really suit, she's not really thrilled about that. She's gotten to write the stories that she wanted to write. And now she's being told that she has to write these light, fluff pieces. I mean, seriously, her writing style is so modern. She pulls no punches. No, and I, when I'm reading her stuff, I'm thinking, this woman has gone back in the DeLorean with a flux capacitor. The way she writes is very modern. Mm-hmm. The way she lived her life, very modern. Her beliefs, the way she attacks life, very modern. You know, it's very readable. I think yes, that's what's attracting people to, to her writing. So she shows some of the spirits she'll later be known for, disgusted with covering flower shows, mm-hmm. etc. And she takes off for the exotic wilds of old Mexico. Now keep in mind, she's been a journalist for nine months. <laughs> she's irritated at starting at the bottom with the flower show. She's so she's all she, done. She thinks highly of herself, but and, that's okay. And now she's going to be a foreign correspondent. Absolutely, because that's what she wants, so she's just going to dive in and do it. So she brings her mother, of course, as chaperone, because we're still Victorians. She wrote back to the interested dispatch public on so many subjects, just mostly cultural, like food, most of which she hated and found <laughs> disgusting. Cheese stuffed peppers. Oh, of course, yeah. you and I would be like, ooh. ooh. I know. Bring me some. Bring me some more. Yeah. In fact, she <laughs> thought it was no, the... No. Um, burial customs, fashion, bullfighting, marriage. She did this whole series of amazing travelogues. Six months of this. Sounds good to me. She had to be careful, though. This was still a dictatorship. And she made the mistake of getting carried away and writing about the arrest of a journalist for writing against the Mexican government and had to hightail it out of there to Pittsburgh. <laughs> and then she felt free and ranted against the government in that paper. Because she's back home. Well, she was back home. Of course. So she's, the paper is running her articles from Mexico, and they hire her back, and they put her on something really interesting. Women's page. What? I know. Well, you know, after that bold achievement, you'd think she'd be rewarded with some meteor work. Nope. She does not. But, so one day, one day, there was a note left on old Erasmus Wilson's desk. How funny that after that first meeting where... Her whole M.O. Mm-hmm. was to send him a hate mail. Yeah. <laughs> they become the closest of friends, and uh-huh. they stayed friends the rest of her life. Close friends. But anyway, there was a note on his desk that said nothing more than, I'm off for New York. Look out for me. <laughs> Bold. Bold. So yes. I think this is probably a natural time to take a little break. But when we come back, we are going to talk about the story that made her career in New York and the one that made her a worldwide phenomenon. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can download a free audiobook today by following the Audible link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. There's over 100,000 titles to choose from over all types of literature to play on your MP3 player or smartphone. And we are back. Our girl Nellie is now headed off to the big city of New York where she is going to make her mark 
and journalism. So, trailing clouds of glory from her Mexican adventure, she thought getting a job would be a no-brainer. Au contraire. Oh, no. She is knocking on doors for four months. I know. Four months of eking out this existence by, ironically, sending women's lifestyle articles back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> hmm. So, she was almost out of money. And then... In a twist of fate, she lost her purse with everything else she had in it. So it was definitely a now-or-never situation. So she borrowed some bus fare from her landlady, and she went down. She always wanted to work for Joseph Pulitzer, who had a paper called The World. And so how she did it was a blur to even her. She talked, she tap danced, she batted her eyelashes against those beautiful green eyes of hers. She made it to the office of the managing editor, John Cockerell, and gave him this crazy list of stunt ideas and story topics. And her favorite idea was to travel steerage, like, send me to Europe. Okay. (laughs) Woman off the street. That's right. (laughs) Send me to Europe, and I'll come back steerage and give you all the deets on what happens in steerage class. It seems like a respectable enough idea. Sure. And you know what? To his credit, he did not say no. And not only did he not say no, he gave her a retainer to not go anywhere else where he thought about it. Mm -hmm. It was about, in today's money, about $850. Which, for for what she had in her pocket, that was... Pretty darn good. And so a month later, they had a proposal for her. Not the steerage thing, because they're like, we're not sending you to Europe. No. You can just... Yeah, forget that. Well, yeah. we have a really exciting place for you to go. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is her trial. This is what she, like, do this, and then maybe we'll hire you. They say, go undercover at a madhouse and see what, report back, what really happens. <gasps> well, there'd been disturbing rumors swirling about the place that the woman's lunatic asylum on Blackwell Island, Mm -hmm. dark things were happening there. But of course, an official visit, you know when the guys are coming, and it's all spruced up. Right, and so the journalists that were going there were reporting back that, oh no, it's a clean place, and the people are well taken care of, and they're fed three square meals a day. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you rumor mongers are all about. Mm -hmm. So they want to send her undercover to find out for facts. So Nellie took it on. They decide to use her, change her name for this piece to Nellie Brown. And it is kind of shocking to me how little effort it took for her to be committed. Like, she moved into a boarding house and acted vague and sad and said she was afraid of everyone there and she wouldn't go to sleep. Now, that would not get you a second look in any emergency room in America right now. No, not at all. And she, like, she checks into this this place with very little money on her so that they would have to do something with her. And she acts what she thought of as crazy. I mean, but seriously, hardly anything. She did hardly anything. But in this buttoned-up era, that could get the police on the case. That's right. (laughs) She was taken before a judge in something that threw her that she might not have thought about. No. Her well-made clothes kind of threw them. Like, okay, obviously you're from a respectable family. And so they started thinking, basically, roofies. That's right. <laughs> the modern-day equivalent. <laughs> Has this person been drugged? And she got a little more attention than she might have because her clothes were too nice. And so it became this, who is this pretty, what, crazy girl? What family does she belong to? And all the newspapers in New York save one, or running columns asking, where, do you know this Nellie Brown? This poor little mystery girl. Um, so, we're just going to cut to the chase on this. You can listen to this whole book for free on iTunes, and I so encourage you to do it. Yes. It's a LibriVox recording. Um, here's a brief, very brief synopsis, because you can listen to the whole thing. Please do. It's yes. so amazing. So, once she was in, 
She dropped all pretense and acted completely normal, and the doctors certified her insane. Okay, that's bad. She cataloged horrifying abuses. Women committed against their will who could never get out. Foreigners put there to get them out of the way. You know, it was not a good experience. Um, but luckily, after ten days, the paper came and got her out by finding her family to take responsibility for her. I was, I don't know that I would trust. I just met this managing editor. How am I going to be secure that he would get me the heck out of there? On day eight, I'd be getting a little concerned. Because she's seen people die. Yeah. And she's being subjected to some physical abuses herself. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) So good. They got her out. Hooray. Um, Now, as Susan said earlier, all the other papers had been capering around this mystery girl story. And so imagine the poo storm when her articles came out. The shock. (laughs) You guys want to know who she is? She's one of our people because we're smarter than you. Oh, my God. I know. So society's faith in doctors and courts kind of completely shaken up right now. Uh, she caused a bit of a storm. Uh, Nellie Bly became a household name. With that one act. And she got herself a job because she proved that she was brave and daring and smart. She proved that she could write. She um, That she had talent. That she was adventurous and would do just about anything. Because if you would do that... You would do just about anything. Well, other smaller stunts followed in the field of, you know, she pretended to be a servant looking for a job. She pretended to be an unwed mother willing to sell her baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turns out, 25 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, Factory work, homes for fallen women. Being in a chorus line. (laughs) I love that. And um, political bribery. So there was serious and there was, you know, all kinds of stuff. She covered the women of Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. Um, she met Laura Bridgman. She met the nine-year-old Helen Keller. Um, she went to Newport to report on society, thus combining our Gilded Age, Aster, and Nellie Bly podcast. I mean, on several podcasts. I'm all at Twitter. <laughs> I would totally watch this reality show, wouldn't you? I would. I, absolutely. And you know what? Other people are watching, too, because it starts a trend, not only in f- women journalists, but in in the stunt reporting. Mm-hmm. And all over the city, there's women being hired to do exactly what Nellie Bly did. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a great first two years in journalism. You heard me. First two years in journalism. What In her early 20s. I mean, she's not that old. She's known for being coquettish. She's very popular with the men. She's not above doing what I call the Scarlett O'Hara, which is pretending to be, oh, I'm just a little lady. Don't mind me. And then getting in there with the frankness and shocking people. She wasn't above flirting with her subjects to put them off their guard. Nope. She got a really interesting interview with a boxer by asking him if he took cold showers and who rubbed him down. Flirt, 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 and then asking the questions. And he was spilling. It's a beautiful woman asking me these sweet questions. And she's now... This is in the day before there's recorders, and she's not really taking copious notes. A lot of her stories are done just basically uh, in methods that wouldn't be accepted today, but, um, you know, from her memory. So during this time, she wrote a poorly received novel called The Mystery of Central Park, kind of lost in the shuffle of her reporting career. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't that good, and no one really liked it. But it doesn't really matter, because here comes the big one. Oh, yeah, here's here's the big one. Jules Verne, 15 years prior. Yeah, his exciting travel book, Around the World in 80 Days, had been this worldwide sensation since its publication, really. So, why not try to beat that, this time in real life? Nellie Bly went to her editor and got the horrifying news that the paper was already, in fact, considering this. Hey, thanks for that idea. We're already doing it, and we're going to send a man. 
Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Um, you know, because a man wouldn't need a chaperone, Nellie Bly, and, and you have too much luggage, Nellie Bly. <laughs> we can't mess with these trunks. It's too cumbersome. You're going to lose, you know, you're going to, mm, that's not going to be good. So she said, send him then. I'll go the same day for some other paper and I'll beat him. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, uh, uh, okay, fine. Let's just be calm, be calm. And then a guy approached their offices um, with his itinerary and said he was setting off to do it and set that little fire under him so on monday they told her hey uh you need to be ready by thursday you have two days <laughs> to prepare for this monumental task of traveling around the world her goal was 75 days right so she determined to travel light she actually had promised to travel light and so she had a dress made very sturdily and very quickly she totally buffaloed those ladies into making her dress very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. She's not going to be able to get rid of them all. You know, no. she has to have a dress custom made. Boning has to be done. Fittings have to be done. But she gets it done. She chooses her blouses made of silk, so they pack small. Her bag that she took was seriously not much bigger than a bread box. It was 16 inches by 7 inches. So here's what's in that handbag. Handkerchiefs, underwear, a dressing gown, the silk bodices, writing materials, a sewing kit, a cup, three veils. Well, I never go anywhere without my veils, I'll tell you. <laughs> and this big jar of cold cream that she regretted for the whole trip, and she says it was the biggest albatross, and she almost left it behind like 900 times. <laughs> but she didn't. <laughs> yeah. And a coat and a hat and, you know, jewelry. <laughs> yeah. And she took, she took some American money to see if that would work. Mm -hmm. and other parts, and she took 200 pounds silver. Sterling. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know what, by the way, let's describe her a little bit. Yes. Because, um, have you seen her waist, by the way? It is so small, she looks like a peanut. She is tiny. She weighs 112 pounds. She's 5'5". Five five. Um, dark hair, green eyes. And what size shoe did quite you tell me? She wore a size 2.5 shoe. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Tiniest of tiny... I mean, I mean, her waist was so Elfin. small that that was used in all of the caricatures of her. It was like, you know how the caricature, you emphasize the one thing? Mm -hmm. Her waist was so small that they always made it go to a little tiny nub in the pictures. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. So she goes to get a passport, and she took the opportunity, and who wouldn't, to shave three years off her age, making her, quote, 22. <laughs> so she's really 25. But she looks 22. She looks very young. Yeah. Now, again, you can listen to this whole story for free. And, in fact, I'd start with this. I would, too. I yeah. love the woman who voice, who reads it. It's, yeah, it's lovely. It's very conversational. If you like us, you will love that. Yeah. So, Around the World in 72 Days is what you want to look for on iTunes. It's a free LibriVox recording. So, some quick highlights, though. She got to meet Jules Verne. That's like the first thing she does. She crosses over the Atlantic, and they say, you know, if we want to change your trip around a little bit, we can get you to meet Jules Verne. Jules Verne. The Jules Verne, who was so excited to meet her, and, in fact, in his sitting room, had had Phileas Fogg, was his main character, mm -hmm. had Phileas Fogg's root on the top, and then he had her proposed root on the bottom, and he was following her with little push pins. I thought that was That's great. That's super cute, yes. Um, I thought it was interesting that everywhere she met was still itself. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, she was in Japan mm-hmm. and entertained by geishas in a tea house. Right. Who were fascinated by her boots. I thought it was funny. All over Asia, the Europeans are like, take off our shoes? No. <laughs> and the Asians are like, um, yes, you must take... No. <laughs> Sorry, kiddos. Not happening. No, no. I thought that was funny. Yeah. Um, she bought a monkey named Mr. McGinty, who smashed every dish in her house when she got home. By the way, he was a very naughty monkey. <laughs> On her trip across America, her train... A specially fitted small train that went really, really fast, went across a bridge on her special train that was, in fact, not riveted yet. (laughs) Seriously, it was held together by, you know, little screws. It could easily have collapsed. Luckily, the train was light and super fast, and it went across, but it was rattly as the dickens, and she could have died. It was just the engine and a car. Yeah, yeah. Now, why was she speeding so fast across America? Somebody else was on her heels. She found out en route that a rival paper had sent a woman in the opposite direction. Her paper had not told her this. Right. <laughs> uh, her name was Elizabeth Bisland. Wow. And she's writing for Cosmopolitan? So, unfortunately for Elizabeth Bisland, who started out ahead, uh, thank goodness Nellie didn't know, because that would be too stressful. She found out, like, halfway. But it was too late. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Either she wins or she doesn't. Yeah, and, and she took it in stride, I, I mean. She did. She's like, well, this is not a race. I'm just going to see if I can beat Jules Verne, right. basically. Now, she's cabling her stories back, which is very, you can only do in short amounts. And then she's mailing the actual handwritten documents back. But this is a big deal. And as she's going, the paper is like, this is a huge circulation boost for them. And so they're running anything that they can mm-hmm. on her trip. They, and they're creating contests. You know, they have a contest. When is she, when will she come in? You know, put your money in here. And um, there's songs and, you know, it, it's it's a big, big, big deal. She was known worldwide. Everyone was following her progress. There was a triumphant return to her home city <laughs> of New York at the time. Um, she had dinner at the Astor House Hotel, by the way. So another podcast. Another tie-in. What a perfect... Number 20. Advertisers clamored for her endorsement. Sometimes just her image was wholesale stolen to use on their products, which reminds me of Dolly Madison. Mm-hmm. You know how Dolly Madison's name was like Dolly Madison Fix Goods. Yeah, Dolly Madison Silverware. Dolly yeah. Madison Silverware. Right. Yeah. So circulation had reached record levels, and Jules Verne's book went through 10 more printings. Because she did this. Thanks, Nelly. She, she is like she's a rock star. She took in about ten thousand dollars. We're looking at about three hundred and fifty thousand today's money mm-hmm. for lectures, personal appearances. But her publishers never thanked her, never gave her a bonus, or frankly, even a salary for this. So Nellie Bly left journalism in a huff again, vowing never to return. But anytime you said woman reporter, that's the image you got in your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you say Gordon's Fisherman, you know what that looks like. If you say woman reporter, everybody would picture that. Now, there's a quote from um, author Brooke Kroger that said, Unfortunately for her successors, she had not unbolted the shackles of gender, only slipped through them herself. So while she had earned respectability and acclaim, she didn't unlock the door for anyone else, really. Everyone else was still copycat. In fact, they gave them a generic pseudonym called Marilyn McGee, meant to efface everybody else's mm-hmm. public face. It kind of amazes me, by the way, how much rival journalists would call her an untalented hack. I think they're just jealous. <laughs> There's somebody out there who will call everybody an untalented hack. It just kills me. She was left off invitation lists and out of articles about women journalists or whatever. Left out at about the same frequency she was in them. Dirty. Purposely snubbed by whole sections of her field. That's crazy. I think that's completely crazy. Although not entirely 
unusual even to this day. Mm. You know? It's unfortunate. I know. We don't like to talk about that. <laughs> so she disappeared for three years, sick of this crap, back to a farm that she had bought ostensibly to pursue a fiction career. We've seen how well that went before. It yeah. just went nowhere like a lead balloon. Mm-hmm. Well, no better which, now. Which, I mean, as, you know, as a writer, having a, a career as a novelist is actually something you would aspire to, so why wouldn't she? Well, and she did aspire for being able, she mm-hmm. kept saying, I, I would like to work from home. I would like yeah. to work from a desk. I would like, you know, she was tired of this scrambling, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, the fiction career went nowhere. She began to suffer from depression, and I keep thinking if it's like a child star, she peaked really early maybe in this thing, and she just, she wanted back into business, I guess, and then they asked her back, and it was like a lot of um, Hollywood Squares type performances. Not a lot of good stories came her way. It was like, hey, you want to show up for this and lend your name to the middle square? Yeah. It was not good. Um, the stunt girls had really diluted her work. Yeah, the, and there was a lot of them. And, and actually, I think around this time, she's thought of as old-fashioned. You know, it's it, that's, yeah, okay, we've, we've already seen that. Let's give me something new. Yeah, she's the vanguard, and now all the copycats have ruined her brand. Mm-hmm. I know. It's yeah. unfortunate. There was one more truly great story here. The, the Pullman strike of 1894, the railroad car manufacturer had laid off half its workforce and reduced everybody's wages by, you know, 25%, but didn't lower the cost of, this was all company towns. So mm-hmm. all the food still cost the same. You right. still had to pay your rent, even if you had no job. Right. Or, in fact, you got kicked out. I mean, it was not, it was cold. It was cold. And the committee went to protest this, and the committee was all fired. The union called a strike. Management let everyone off, and it, riots ensued. For two months, there were riots, and Nellie Bly went to cover it, getting ready to be irritated at the strikers, like all the other newspapers. Like, railroading right. has come to a close. How are you doing this to America? Right. And she went there and wrote it from the perspective, like she did so long ago about the factory girls. She right. wrote it from their perspective. And um, it was amazing. And humanized it. Yep. Yes, she definitely mm-hmm. did. She wrote, they are not murderers and rioters. They're not anarchists. They're quiet, peaceful men who've suffered under the boot heel of the most heartless coward it's ever been my misfortune to hear of. Not pulling punches. Mm-mm. We're not kowtowing to industry here. Like, all the other papers are not covering it this way. Yeah. She's radical. And it led her to move to Chicago, in fact, where her expose of conditions at the Cook County Jail led directly to reform in a hearkening back to her madhouse. Right, right. So she she really did, in effect, cause change. Was she trying to cause change or was she just trying to sell another story? I think this right here was the beginning of her real need to create change because once she saw the Pullman village, Mm -hmm. she went to another industrialist town where he had been taking care of his workers and everyone was a lot happier. And she started to realize that if you treat your workers with great respect, it's better for all society. If the the lowest among them can be treated with great dignity. So I think this story is what kind of started to change her attitude about like, make a buck, make a buck, whatever. Survive. And then yeah, social change. Survive for yourself, now survive for the bigger picture. I totally agree. So I think now might be time to take another break, and when we come back, we will begin with the greatest adventure Nellie Bly ever undertook, marriage. Audible is offering you, our listeners, a free audiobook download to give you a chance to try out their service. 
To accompany this podcast, we recommend Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days, narrated by the incomparable Jim Dale, whose voice might seem familiar to you from his performance in all the Harry Potter audiobooks. Listen to the book that inspired Nellie Bly's most famous adventure. To receive your free audiobook download, simply follow the Audible ad on our website, thehistorychicks.com. And we're back. Our girl Nellie has pretty much stalled out, I would say, professionally for her. She's not quite sure where she's going to go. So well, she's traveled around the world. She's stood up for the rights of women in the working class. She's seen the inside of an insane asylum. Where well, else is there to go? Well, at the age of 30, all of a sudden, Elizabeth Jane Cochran became Mrs. Robert Seaman, millionaire, industrialist, and 40 years older than she was. And they had not had, they had only met two weeks prior. Was she marrying for money, is what people said. Well, it was so unexpected it's and like so what? out of character, people thought it might be another stunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's it like? I, but, you know, no, you know, I keep wondering if it's, you know... I just want someone to take care of me for mm-hmm. a change. She had been the sole support of most of her family for a long time. Right. Um, even Albert, her slightly older brother, who theoretically was the head of the family, was kind of leeching off of her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was pretty fast, yeah. but she made up her mind, and that's what she was going to do. And this marriage did not start out too well. His brother, Edward, who lived in the house, was so against her that Nellie Bly refused to have dinner at home, and she ate out every night. Mm-hmm. But her husband refused to give her money, so he opened accounts at different restaurants. And then he, she began to suspect her husband had her followed. Mm-hmm. And so she actually had someone arrested for doing so, and her husband bailed the guy out. Okay, so this was the clumsy, obvious one. Yeah. He had a professional that was really tailing her. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Nellie Bly had been romantically linked to a couple of people in the past. Nothing serious, and, you know, discretion was the order of the day. But one of the people that her husband was having followed was one of those guys. Yeah. Nothing came of it. No. It was a waste of money. Yeah. Well, um, he can spend his millions any way he likes. I know, but it infuriated her. Well. As it, as it should. But he drafted a will. There's probably, like, the one thing that she didn't want to happen is to get into a controlling relationship. I know. (laughs) So he drafted a will, leaving her, in addition to her widow's portion, just $300. And she immediately went back to work. Like, okay, I see how this is going to go. And this time she covered the very beginnings of the suffragist movement. Which is kind of great. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a good time for her to go back. Yeah, and these are the big guns. This is Susan B. Anthony and mm-hmm. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But I will tell you one quote that amuses me. Yes. I have to read it because this is so her. Yes. So she's at the conference covering it blow by blow, minute by minute, serious topics. And then out of nowhere she goes, I never could see any reason for a woman to neglect her appearance because she's intellectually inclined. It does not show any strength of mind. I take it rather as a weakness. And in working for a cause, I think it's wise to show the men that its influence does not make women the less attractive. She was so irritated when one of these speakers wasn't wearing a corset. She's like, do you want to be distracting? Hilarious to me. There's such a dichotomy. She's serious-minded, but yet she referred to dress as a weapon. And in fact, a weapon men lack. So why aren't we using this weapon we have? It's one of the few we have that men lack, so why aren't we exploiting it? 
Isn't that interesting, though? It's like she's I know. always viewed as a feminist, and she acted as a... She just acted in her own interest. Right. Which I think... It was very feminist. It's very feminist. Sure. It was all those years writing it for the women's pages. Oh, maybe. <laughs> She'd written so many Oh, articles. no. I think it was all those years being cute and having it get her in the door. Yeah. Yeah, she used I it. I think that's what Yeah, she used it. Why aren't you using yeah, it? Yeah, why, like, why are you leaving this on the table? I don't know if she used those techniques on her husband, but a year later she was back on top as the executor of his will. Yep. And he placed his company, which was called the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. She was the nominal president, but he placed the company in the hands of some trusted employees and they went to Europe and enjoyed four years of lovely money spending travelocity. Slow travel. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Unlike the travel of her past. No, that was probably a mistake in the long run, given that the selected guys mismanaged, stole, and wasted most of the worth of the company. True, and that doesn't play out until a little bit later. But they came back because it was, you know, they wanted to keep their hands in or whatever. She actually took it very seriously that she was president of the company. She worked 12-hour days. She has 25 patents under her name for things like an improved milk can. Milk cans and steel cans. She's She's a patent holder. Multiple patent holder, yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, And she wanted to take care of the employees. After that Pullman expose, she decided, and she writes, it's the responsibility of every employer to take care of his own who've produced his wealth. So she took off the burden of piecework everyone had been under. They added things like showers and free towels. Free towels for employees, you know, (laughs) at the shower. Um, A gym, a bowling alley, a library. Library, A um, dining room. Most importantly, doctor visits were kept to 50 cents, and if there's any overage, the company would pay it. The the doctor would come to see you at your house, or he would come to see you at work. Um, I thought that was nice. And then she gave everyone a Christmas dinner for six every year. And it listed the ingredients, chicken, Mm -hmm. plum pudding, apples, oranges, cans of soup, beans, and biscuits. That was really nice. That was very nice. They were given the time. Oh, you know, yeah. that was that was very modern, don't you think? It was very paternalistic. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it was more I'm like just going for my Delorean theory again. Okay, <laughs> that's true. And maybe it's not modern 2011. Maybe it's modern like 90s. Well, you know what it reminds me of. If you've been watching Downton Abbey, it reminds me of how Lord Grantham is to his servants. Like yes. anything that happens to them. They work for him, and he is their father figure, mm-hmm. and he will go out of his way to make sure and take care of the them. outside world does not impact them. So that's kind of how she was acting toward her employees, I thought. And if you're not watching Downton Abbey, why, why aren't you? Not? <laughs> yeah. Now, as the menfolk in her life tend to do, Mr. Seaman died suddenly when she was 40. He had got heart disease after being hit by a horse and carriage. But he it was almost like they put a bunch of melodies in a hat and pulled out hit by horse and carriage. Heart disease. You know, just like Dead. the top three. <laughs> they pick it out and that's what they write down. But she's So she's, you know, 40 years old and a widow. Yes. Now, this is when all of the forgeries and thefts and... Horrible management by these trusted employees went to the point where she spent the most of the next 10 years in court, sometimes in danger of jail, certainly watching millions of dollars circle the drain. Yeah. Um, 
she kept doing things like putting titles of her houses in other people's names, shifting stock around. I mean, some things might be a little unethical. She was trying to save the remainder, but... Right, because after they got the money from the company that had to close down, there were still so many debts still outstanding, mm -hmm. and it had to come from somewhere, so let's get it from Robert's estate. So, so she yeah. went to Europe to escape all this and try to maybe put a little bit of a break on that. Well, you can't talk to me, so I guess you can't proceed with this proceeding. <laughs> you know, right. you can't go ahead with the court proceeding. She went to Europe, and, of course, a war broke out. <laughs> Just coincidentally. Let's go on vacation to Europe and run away. Oh, my goodness. She was heard to say, I have too much bad luck for anyone to be near me. <laughs> like, oh, oh woe is me. <laughs> now, she became a war correspondent. She's in Austria. And at the time, the United States is not in the war, so they're not enemy combatants, although they are against Britain. You know, of course, her fur coat weighed 50 pounds. Of course it did. And her so, days of traveling lighter kind of are over. <laughs> and um, typical, you know, of her. And then she charmed a man into giving her his cape, also typical. Mm -hmm. So here she is, teeny tiny woman, wrapped in this 250-pound man's cape. That's right. But she, I, I mean, to her credit, she's not the um, young pretty little girl anymore. She's more mature, and but she's still... She's still got she's it. She's got the power. She wrote amazingly detailed stories back from the front, and there is a story about how she got off a train and left her papers on the train mm -hmm. and got arrested by some German soldiers who wondered, okay, you're obviously speaking English. You are a spy. We will right. take you in. No one spoke English. She's trying to explain, no, I, I'm... Here's who I am, blah, blah, blah. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. Finally, they hauled some poor bedraggled English speaker out of his slumber and pulled him in. Like, what is this woman saying? I don't understand her. And he, he said, they think you're a British spy. But I hear you must be American. And she said, yes, I'm Nellie Bly. And he freaked out. Nellie Bly! Nellie Bly! And he leaped across the table and gave her big hugs. Nellie Bly! Nellie Bly! And here's the Germans, like... What does that mean? <laughs> Can you translate Nellie Bly for what does this mean? They're all bewildered. And it yeah. reminded me of that scene in Romancing the Stone uh -huh. when Kathleen Turner's character and Michael Douglas's character go in the middle of nowhere in South America. Uh -huh. And she mentions her name and the dictator opens the door. Joan Wilder! Joan Wilder! Oh, I will do anything for Joan Wilder. So basically her name saved her bacon in a war zone. Yeah. And it wasn't even her name to begin with. I know. Her pseudonym. <laughs> That's fantastic. So when the U.S. finally did get into the war, she was actually writing from an enemy country, as if she didn't have enough trouble. She was working for widows and orphans, Austrian widows and orphans, mm -hmm. all well and good when the United States was not in the war. Right. But now she got some attention from the government because she had this pro-Austrian reputation and got her into a little bit of hot water with the government. And one official wondered, should she be let back in at all? Bad. So she did, of course, to find herself completely penniless, not this time from employees, which you can kind of understand, money-grubbing psychos, but from her brother Albert and her own mother had basically continued to draw money from the company and had bankrupted her completely. And they refused to be sorry for it. And they refused to admit they'd done a thing wrong. Isn't that something? This is just a reoccurring theme in her life. It's a roller coaster of finances. It is a roller coaster of finances. So, you know, she had a lot of contacts in the journalistic world. And so she's back to journalism again. It, it's her fallback. It's her default career. Yeah. You know, it's funny because most people have a fallback in case the journalism doesn't work out. Right. <laughs> they, they learn to, you know, 
be an accountant. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So her journalism was the fallback. And so she took up this new cause. It's a whole new way. Like we were saying earlier, I think it's gone from get the buck, get the story, make the fame. She's making a decent salary. It's a plain salary. She's living plainly. And now she's taking up the cause of the poor and specifically poor working women. Here's another quote from the beginning of that um, about her choice of theme on her new life. Among our millions of women, hundreds of thousands get down. Working women lose their jobs. Wives lose their husbands. Widows lose their money. Fate finds innumerable ways to strike. The more reputable the woman, the bitterer the blow. Her decency is her greatest handicap. No one is helping a pure woman stay pure, not until she's out, and only then will she find aid. So that's like the theme of her next series. I mean, her, she has these different periods, doesn't she? She does. The adventure yeah. period, the mm-hmm. war period. Mm-hmm. And the, now the widows and orphans period. Yeah. So author Brett Croker, again, refers to this period as a clearinghouse for fractured families, is what her column became. Mm-hmm. She tried to actively place abandoned babies with new families. She helped to find child care and jobs for women. She answered letters from readers and gave mm-hmm. advice on marriage um, and, and things she could find out about child rearing because she did not have children. Right. In that. But people at that office started to get used to these raggedy Anns and Andes thronging the lobby to talk to her about mm-hmm. things. They started to get really used to, yeah. <laughs> used to it. Okay. Um, she showed her politics. Um, in fact, People said that all these people were taking advantage of her, and here's how she showed her politics. She just said, relieve immediately, investigate afterwards, which says a lot about the earlier, you know, are you going to act or are you going to pray about it? Right. Right. But now she's got the clout to not care. Like, fire me. I don't care. That's right. I've been through it. I don't care. I'm I'm going to land on my feet somehow. Yeah. So the most sensational of these happened when a seven-month-old baby was handed to an officer at Grand Central Station with a note saying to somebody, for the love of Mike, take this kid and give him to Nellie Bly. There are others I have to support. Yikes. Now, her her mothering was pretty much limited to McGinty, the monkey. The monkey. (laughs) In all theory. Spoiled, rotten, brat monkey. Yeah. I'm going to tell the story of this baby in a special feature because it is a turnabout, turnabout story. Mm -hmm. It's so bizarre. But she did have children in her house from here on out, fostering them while waiting for adoptive parents. She was an outspoken advocate for birth control in the year 1919. Which is not one of your birth control years. Not (laughs) really. She blamed large families for the misery of the poor. She loved her public in a way she had never been loved, I don't think, personally. Um, the lofty standoffishness she had, you know, the little cavalier, I'm Nellie Bly, you know, yeah. it's gone. It's gone. This is so touching. I just have to read this. Okay. I have to read this. And so many of you have written to me so pathetically that you have no one in the world and never had and that you just love me. Remember, I love you too, every single one of you. I think of you daily. I am your true friend. I want you to live, to be happy, to accomplish great things in the world, to be the builders of your own homes and your own families, to make your families what you want them to be, not as fate has given them to others. Don't despair for one minute. Remember, if the world sees you're determined to make something of yourself, it will help you. And don't forget, I love you. Wow. So that's our current Nellie Bly. Yeah. Very touching. Very touching and very readable and very down to earth. You know, not a lot of flowery language, which was, was common for the time. Yeah. 
unfortunately, her health is starting to deteriorate. She's not very old. She's in her mid-late 50s, uh, but she starts ignoring her health, and she gets bronchitis and has lots of breathing problems, um, but she doesn't stop working. She keeps up her pace and, you know, it neglects, really neglects her health, doesn't take her medicines, just doesn't do what she's supposed to do, and unfortunately, she develops pneumonia and uh, succumbs at the age of 58 in 1922. I just keep thinking, if we'd had 30 more years of her, reform could have been grand. The way she was going right there at the end. I know. You think of her life early on as being so dramatic and then fizzling. Because that's a lot of the stories. She did you know, she did the madhouse. She did the around the world. And then she lived out her life at the end as a journalist. And that's, But you're right. The change could have happened. Yeah, and if you know anything about Nellie Bly, you probably know Around the World in 72 Days Mm -hmm. and the stunt journalism thing, but it's the quieter things that she did later that I think made more of an impact, really. Societal change, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, she covered feminism in a very no-nonsense kind of way. She covered birth control, the plight of the poor, class relations. Mm -hmm. It's just Very mature topics. Yeah. And a lot of the information that's out, unfortunately, is but it's geared toward children. It's a... You know, here's a here's a role model for you, but it doesn't talk about what she did later in her life. Yeah, it's mostly about the adventurous mm-hmm. aspects of the earlier part of her life. And the social reform was definitely an adventure that she didn't get to complete. So we have some links for you, some books and links. We do. There is a PBS American Experience that you can get from Netflix. It's a DVD. Around the World in 72 Days, The Audacious Adventures of Nellie Bly. And it's about an hour. And there was a 1981 movie with Linda Pearl. It's not on Netflix and it's not on Amazon Instant. So I I guess you'd have to find the DVD if it exists or a VHS. But I vaguely recall seeing it back in the day when Linda Pearl was in everything. But, yeah. Wow, I'd have to go find a VHS machine. I, I have one at my house. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I know. Speaking of going in the way back machine. Right. <laughs> and as we had said earlier, um, you can listen to the LibriVox recordings around the world in 72 days and 10 days in a madhouse. Highly recommend it. I that. do. Just around the world. And you can get the, I got uh, downloaded around the world onto my Kindle for free, I think. If it wasn't free, it was a buck. Now, as to books, there's innumerable children's books that are very worthwhile checking out, by the way. There's a National Geographic byline, a photobiography of Nellie Bly, which I just adored. It has a foreword by Linda Ellerby, who is a journalist who probably, you know, Nellie Bly was her role model back in the day. So that's, it's, it's a great, it's lots of pictures and it's a good story and it covers a lot of, a lot more detail than a lot of children's books generally do. A book by Brooke Kroger that I've quoted a couple times called Nellie Bly, Daredevil, Reporter, Feminist. And it is extensive. It is a large book. It covers everything you could want. It talks about, you know, there's a lot that, that about her family and things that were going on at the time. That So now that you know the basics, this I would definitely go for as an adult, go for the Brooke Kroger book. And then there's Kathy Emerson's Making Headlines, a biography of Nellie Bly also. Well, let me leave you with a quote from her friend and publisher, Arthur Brisbane, 
Nellie Bly died too young. She takes with her from this earth an honorable name, the respect and affection of her fellow workers, the memory of good fights well fought, and of many good deeds never to be forgotten by those who've had no friend but Nellie Bly. Happy the man or woman that can leave as good a record. We're full of admiration. I would I would have hung with her. Me too. <laughs> I would have been honored if she would hang with me. I guess I should put it that way. I don't know if she would. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Bye. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with, with an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like to in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. Top of a mountain, winter where rivers are born. A true three coins in the fountain, sailed through the eye of a storm. I sat across from a wise man, he said, I'll tell you what is true. I said, Excuse the interruption, if it's all the same to you, I'm going back to New York. Back to New York. Back to New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found the lost city of Atlantis.